0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now, Scripture reading is, I believe, on page 1179, if you're using the Church Bible eleven. 79 Philippians chapter 2 and uh, this evening we're going to read verses 5 to 11 and focusing our attention this evening on verses 9 to 11. The context in which Paul's writing he's in prison probably in Rome he's received a gift from the Philippians he's writing For several reasons. One is to thank them for the gift which he leaves to the end. Uh, Another is to explain why he is sending Epaphroditus to him when probably the Philippians are hoping he'll send Timothy. And so, he is to negotiate the fact that they are maybe looking forward to receiving Timothy and Epaphroditus, whom they know well is coming in his place. And the third reason he's writing is because Epaphroditus, who brought the gift, looks as though he has also told Paul about some possible difficulties in the church at Philippi. Uh, We'll eventually come to discover that two of the ladies in the congregation aren't exactly getting on with one another, and Paul is concerned about the unity of their fellowship and very strikingly, in the opening verses, he keeps saying that he's praying for all of them, he's concerned about them all, and he's wanting them to live as Christians whose citizenship is in heaven. And so, when he describes the Christian life and urges them to live the Christian life, that's the unusual language he uses in chapter 1, verse 27 whatever happens, conduct yourself. Live as a citizen of heaven, he is saying, even while you are on earth. And if you are to do that, if you are to enhance the unity of the church family and fellowship, a key ingredient is humility. And so, he has urged them in chapter 2 and verse 3 in humility to consider others as more important than themselves, and now he points them to the example of the Lord Jesus and the fact that if they are Christ's, then through the Spirit they have the mind of Christ. And so, he says in verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." The word therefore, the word therefore is actually one of the most important words in the New Testament. And we often associate it especially with the Apostle Paul who uses it frequently. In fact, he is just about to use it again in chapter 2 and verse 12. And usually when Paul uses it, he is explaining the relationship between what God has done for us in Christ and how we are to respond to that. He's moving from telling us what the gospel is to calling us to live a gospel-focused, gospel-style life in response. So, ordinarily, he uses it when he's connecting together what God has done for us and how we are to respond to what God has done. He's connecting God with the believer. But here in Philippians chapter 2, when he uses the word therefore in verse 9, he's not connecting God and believers. He's connecting God the Father and God the Son. And we are taking a little time on these verses, not least because it's the run up to Christmas time, because these verses give us two different attitudes, two different perspectives on the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. The first few verses, verse 6 through verse 8, give us Jesus' perspective. Paul explains the the inner mindset of the Lord Jesus. It's a very rare thing when any author in the New Testament does that. John gives us a hint in John 13. Uh, Paul gives us a hint in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 and verse 9. But this is the supreme place in the whole of the Bible where we're given an inside uh, informational clue. what Jesus was thinking about in the incarnation. And the story, as we saw last week, is down, down, down. Just as in John 13, He got down from the table. He got further down on His knees before the disciples to wash their dirty feet. In a sense, we know what they don't know. That is, he went even further down and he washed the dirty feet of Judas Iscariot, who was to betray him. And now, Paul, having explained to us what was the mind of Christ, he was willing to empty himself, not to empty anything out of himself, but to empty his Form of glory into the farm of a slave, and then even as a, as a slave to die the accursed death of the cross in humiliation and under the judgment of God, fulfilling the word of Deuteronomy that Paul quotes in Galatians chapter 3, that the one who hangs on a tree hangs there because he is under the judgment of God and accursed of God. So Philippians 2 verses 6 through 8 take us down and down and down. And now Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11 take us up and up and up, or rather, describe how the Father viewed the Incarnation, how the Father responded to the Incarnation in the exaltation of the Lord Jesus. It's actually the the very same pattern in the suffering servant song in Isaiah 53 that we were studying a number of weeks ago, that the Father raises up the suffering servant because He poured out His soul unto death. So, Jesus is described in terms of His self-emptying, in terms of His servant form, and in terms of His humiliation. And it's these three realities that the Father now reverses. He reverses Jesus' self-emptying, he reverses Jesus' servant farm. He reverses Jesus' humiliation in crucifixion. So the three statements that are made in nine to eleven, God exalted him to the highest place, God gave him the name that is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord are are not so much three distinct stages as three dimensions of the single response that the Father makes and will make to all that Jesus did when He came on earth and died on the cross for our sins and for our salvation. So, first of all, the Father reverses Jesus' self-emptying by divine exaltation. Look at the language that Paul uses. Because he became obedient to death, even death on a cross, God exalted him to the highest place. What Paul more literally says, it's, it's it's one verb. God highly exalts him, or even more literally in Paul's language, God hyper exalts him. Uh, if you're a mother with young children uh, but don't know any Greek, you still know that prefix, don't you? Uh, the children are hyper. What does it mean? It means that they've, they've, gone, they've gone into the stratosphere of excitement. And so, you expect that they will then go down to the abyss of tears, that they are over the top. And we adults sometimes say about people, usually not to their face, but behind their back, she's a bit hyper. And interestingly, of all the New Testament writers, the Apostle Paul is the writer who loves hyper language. For some reason, he loved hyperverbs, and none more than this. As though to say, when when the Father reversed the self-emptying of the Son, He wasn't content just to exalt Him, but to hyper-exalt Him. That just as the Son had not only Taken the servant farm and been born as a man and humbled himself to death. But in a sense, had hyper humbled himself by going to this particular death of the cross. And I almost sense Paul's voice breaking when he says, even the death of the cross. The shame of it, the disgrace of it, the cruelty of it. And so, because He hyper-abased Himself, the Father has hyper-exalted Him to His right hand. You know, before His crucifixion, Jesus was both conscious that that would happen and knew why it would happen remember when he speaks about himself as being the, the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. I wonder if you have ever noticed the, the, the little statement he makes, it seems almost in passing, when he says this, the reason the Father loves me, the reason the Father loves me is because I lay down my life for the sheep." Of course, the father always loved his son. The father father loved his son when he was brought forth from the womb of the Virgin Mary, and when he he was in the temple as a twelve-year-old boy, and when he was baptized and tempted. he, He loved him, just as we love our children. And yet there are moments and reasons why and when the love that is a constant in our relationship seems to swell within us. We can can hardly contain. It's as though we we discover emotionally and psychologically how deep down that love goes. And it's one of the wonderful mysteries. Must have been a great assurance to the Lord Jesus when He knew the darkness He was going to face at Calvary. To know that the supreme reason the Father would love Him was because He was willing to be obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Do you know that hymn by William Featherstone? Um, My Jesus, I love Thee. I know Thou art mine. For Thee all the pleasures of sin I resign, and as this refrain, if ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. Well, put that into the mind and heart and mouth of God, as in the the mystery of the relationship between the Father and the Son, the Son is crying out, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? And if we can put it in human terms, his heart breaking, his eyes flowing with tears, his father is singing to him. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. And that's the reason for his exaltation. Um, It is that the Father, and we'll come to this, the Father who has seen him in the depths of humiliation wants to raise him to the heights of exaltation, to reverse his self-emptying by this supreme exaltation. And so, he does this by raising him from the dead and by bringing him home to heaven. So, there's the reversal of his self-emptying by his divine exaltation. Therefore, God who loves him exalted him to the highest place. And then he reverses in the second place the servant farm that he took. He was in the very form of God. He he didn't count that something that he could uh, or wanted to hold on to and say, I'm not going to that humiliation for their sakes because of who I am, but rather he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Really, it would be better to translate that form of a slave wouldn't it? Uh, He went down that far. And now, says the apostle, whether this hymn, if it was a hymn, was composed by him, He, he certainly made it his own. Now, he has taken the one who was in the servant form, and he has given him not the name of slave, but the name that is above every name." Now, you ought to be asking the question, what is this name that he's been given above every name? Because Paul doesn't, doesn't you know, why, why don't you spell this out for us, Paul, so that, so that New Testament scholars won't be debating what this name is? There are certainly many Christians who think that the name that is above every name is the name Jesus, because Paul goes on to say that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. But it can't be the name Jesus, can it? Because he wasn't given the name Jesus in his exaltation. He was given the name Jesus in his humiliation. You will call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. So, he's not given the name Jesus at his exaltation, but in his humiliation. Perhaps it just means name. You know what we sometimes say about people, he's really made a name for himself. But Paul doesn't say that he's going to reverse his servant form by giving him any name, or letting him make a name for himself, but the name. And so, the answer to the question, what name is the name that is above every other name actually is, it's the name that's above every other name, which is Lord. Remember, actually, I'm sure this is in Paul's mind as he, as he writes these words or dictates these words, words of Isaiah 45, you remember, that every knee will bow to me because I am the Lord. And certainly anyone who was, who was reading this with any kind of acquaintance with the Old Testament knew that that was the name if, for example, you know Jewish people with any kind of Orthodox background, you know that they never use the name of God. They always refer to the name, Hashem, the name. Um, And if you hear uh, Jewish people reading the Old Testament Scriptures or the Hebrew Bible, out loud you will know, when you, if, if they read it in Hebrew, they will never use the divine name that was given through Moses. It's there in the text. It's there hundreds, thousands of times in the text that the Lord's name is Yahweh. But if you hear uh, Jewish people reading the Hebrew Scriptures, they will always substitute Adonai. It's a different word that is actually used in the Old Testament for the Lord, but it's not the supreme name of the Lord, the holy name of the Lord. You know, in fact, that, that Old Testament Hebrew scholars do not know with dogmatic certainty how you pronounce the Hebrew word that I've just pronounced, Yahweh. And if you listen carefully to the great Hebrew scholars, you'll notice that some of them will pronounce it in different ways from others. And the reason is nobody knows. Why does nobody know? Because the Hebrew people stopped pronouncing it. I realized only a few years ago in the middle of an address I was given that all my life I have pronounced the word A-T-T-I-T-U-D-E Attitude. And then suddenly it dawned on me, everybody else around me pronounced it attitude. But what if nobody ever pronounced the word? It was too holy to be pronounced. And and you can you can sense that. there, there There was probably originally a motivation of awe and reverence that drew them to a false conclusion, that the name that is above every other name, the name Jehovah, Yahweh, that in the Greek translation the apostle Paul used was always translated by the Greek word kurios, Lord that that was the name. Does that mean that, that Jesus became Lord, became Yahweh, only when he, when he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven? Well, Paul certainly didn't believe that, did he? Because he's already said at the beginning of this passage that He was in very nature God. Before the incarnation, He was in very nature God. He had all the divine properties. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Remember how Jesus prays in John 17, 5, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the creation of the world. No, he's, he's not here saying that Jesus becomes God that Jesus becomes Yahweh, that Jesus becomes Lord only. But he is saying that it's on his ascension that the Father, as it were, points especially heaven but also earth to Jesus, the crucified and now raised and exalted and says, recognize this one who took the slave form." because the one who took the slave farm is home now with us, still clothed in his humanity. And I name him, that is to say, I identify him as himself being the Lord. You know, the early fathers in the Christian church, uh, like ourselves in Scotland, it's actually, I think it's unique to Scotland probably, uh, they loved the closing verses of the 24th Psalm. Ye gates lift up your heads on high, ye doors that last foray. I won't sing it for you. But we could sing it. I could get Stephen to come up and present for us. The early fathers used to used to love to think of that Psalm in terms of this moment when the sun raised from the dead ascended into the heavens and and... In some way beyond our understanding, came home to them. And they thought, of, they thought of angels turning to the Father and saying, This one is saying, Open up the gates for me, because he's the King of glory. And they're saying, But who is this King of glory? And the answer is Yahweh, the Lord who has been strong and mighty in battle, who has defeated sin and death and Satan and hell, and he is returning now as the the victor, as the triumphant general coming home to the city, and the city gates open up for him, and he marches in to the acclaim. And those of you who remember this from... Being murdered by high school Latin, you remember that when a general was given a a triumph, they stuck a slave into the chariot with him, and every hundred yards or so, he would pronounce two Latin words, homo es, remember, you're only a man. And it's almost as though here what Paul is saying is our, our general has triumphed. He has he gone home in victory, and there's no slave in his chariot who became a slave for our salvation. And the heavenly Father himself is saying to him, not homo es, but deus es, you are the Lord. And all heaven is encouraged to welcome him in. And the church on earth encouraged to welcome him in because he is none other than the king of glory. And so his self-emptying is reversed by his divine exaltation. And his servant form is reversed by his regal coronation. It's always a trick question, isn't it, that you can ask people from other countries who like to think they know a great deal about Britain, you ask them when Elizabeth II became queen. And they will almost always say 1953. And you'll be able to say, got you! Because she became queen in 1952 on the death of her father. But the coronation was the next year. When she who was queen was acclaimed as queen. And it's something like that, isn't it? He was in the form of God, but took the form of a servant. But now he's he's gone back for he's gone back for the coronation, to be crowned, for all angels and archangels and cherubim and seraphim to be told, This is your Lord. He's home from the battle in triumphant majesty. And actually, you know, in the midst of all the discussions that Christians have about the Holy Spirit and the day of Pentecost, this is actually the meaning of the day of Pentecost. When Peter was asked, what is going on here? Are these men drunk? He said, no, you need to understand. That this is the visible evidence that God the Father has pronounced Him Acts two thirty three to thirty six has pronounced Him to be both Lord and Christ. Uh, Some of us are old enough to remember the coronation. Remember, we were—I was—I think in primary one. We all got—we all got gifts. And then everybody started squabbling because the kids in Glasgow weren't getting as good gifts as the kids in Edinburgh. And anyway, my mug of sweeties was broken on the second day, probably worth a thousand pounds today. But there was this amazing celebratory distribution of gifts, which of course is exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. It was the visible evidence that Jesus who had emptied himself was now exalted and was pouring down through the Holy Spirit the gifts of His grace upon all flesh. His task had been fulfilled, and now the gifts of the King were being distributed. So, His self-emptying becomes His exaltation, His servant farm becomes His coronation, and then thirdly, His humiliation to the death of the cross becomes the universal submission of all that is in heaven and earth and under the earth. Remember how John describes that humiliation to the cross, how how the Roman soldiers played king for a day with Him, and they, they put on one of the, the senior officer's robes to make him look like a king, and they made a crown of thorns and pressed it down his head, and they, they put an artificial uh, scepter into his hand as a symbol of authority, and they, they bowed down, your majesty, your majesty spat upon, despised, bloodied, humiliated, taken out to be crucified the most disciplined men on the face of the earth, these Roman soldiers, humiliating the Son of God. And now, says Paul, that humiliation will be put into reverse. And the day will come, is coming, has Mm -hmm. begun to come, when every knee, willingly or unwillingly, will bow to Him Things in heaven where they're already bowing to Him. People on earth, where today, you know, what, why is it that our, our arrogant, self-centered, post-enlightenment, post-truth Western world is still not able to grasp there are more people in the world bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus today than at any time in human history. And that the day may not be too far off where there are more people bowing the knee contemporaneously to the Lord Jesus Christ than have done so throughout the whole of history. And the day will come when every knee, says Paul, will bow the knee to Him. It's already happening. And one day it will reach its consummation, and every knee bowed to Him. You know, if you were not a Christian and you read that, it might greatly irritate you and you might say that will never happen. But even you would know there are experiences in life where your response is beyond your control. You see something that overwhelms you. You are persuaded by something that you said you couldn't possibly believe. It isn't that you will need to be willing to do this. It is that when you see Him as He is, you will know there is nothing else you could do. And the sight of Him would constrain you willingly or unwillingly, to bow the knee and to say, He is Lord. Why then? Why then does Paul say, do you notice how this whole passage ends, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why, why does he not end this by saying, so, so the whole movement here is, is to the glory of God the Son? And the answer to that is, because as we saw last time behind this whole passage, is the way in which Paul understands that what Jesus has come to do is to undo what the first Adam did and to do what the first Adam failed to do. And so the reason all of this is to the glory of God the Father and not said to be to the glory of Christ the Son is because everything the Son is doing he is doing because Adam and we with him have failed to do it. And now that he has done it, on that day when every knee bows to him and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, and Jesus' work is fully and finally done, he will, as it were, take it all into his arms. Paul describes this in first Corinthians 15. And as our Savior, he will approach the throne of his heavenly Father, and say, Father, what they failed to do I have done, and I've done it for you, and it's all for your glory. And so, Paul is teaching us, he's, 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 he's teaching these Philippians a very simple lesson because He's urging them to humility. That's the, amazingly, this extraordinary passage is here to teach us humility. So, why does, he, why does he spend half of the passage speaking about Christ's exaltation? Very simple reason. Remember how Peter puts it, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and in due season he will exalt you. The way to gain life is to lose life. The way to share in Christ's exaltation, His reign, to joy in His superlative position is to humble yourself. And yet, at the same time, for these fearful Philippian Christians, there's a great message here, isn't there? They're a small group of people in a Roman colony. They're under Roman law they're living in a totalitarian state and he's saying to them, put this in perspective brothers and sisters in Christ and know that Jesus is reigning and and he will reign don't you think they would have been breathless with astonishment if they had Known and seen the spread of the gospel that we've seen. You know, some people at this time of year sing the Christmas carol, God rest ye merry gentlemen, or God rest ye merry, comma, gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay because there are tidings of comfort and joy. And there's comfort here because Jesus Christ is enthroned. And there's joy here because the one who has been humiliated is the one who has been exalted. Looking back over my life, there are moments in singing that have been kind of specially significant to me. And every every year at Christmas time when we're singing Cecil Francis Alexander's carol written for children, and we move through the life of Jesus, and we think of His childhood and manhood, and then we come to this, and our eyes at last shall see Him through His own redeeming love. Not in that poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by, we shall see him but in heaven set at God's right hand on high, when like stars his children cried, all in white shall wait around. This passage is everything, my friends. It has Christ in eternity. It is Christ in the incarnation. It is Christ in his crucifixion. It is Christ in his resurrection. It is Christ in his ascension. It is Christ in his return. It is Christ in his heavenly session. And Paul is saying to them, he's all yours. He is all yours as you come to trust in him. What? a Savior. What a Savior. What a great and loving Savior. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love your Son so much more than we do. And we can scarcely bear to think about his humiliation, especially because it was for us. We cannot imagine how it must have been for you to give your Son to the cruel death of the cross, but we know that it was because he was obedient to death that your heart was full of love for him. And we thank you now that in heaven at your right hand, all the angels and the archangels and the cherubim and the seraphim who may have puzzled us to what you were doing in sending him for the sake of sinners like ourselves. We thank you that they are in no doubt that you have always loved him and that you especially love him for the very same reason we especially love him, because we are able to say what these angels will never need to say, that the Son of God took servant form and was crucified for us men and women and for our salvation. Oh, we pray that we may never lose sight either of his humiliation or of his exaltation. And as we live together as your people and live in the world, we pray that the mind of Christ may be in us as we love and care for and serve each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.